Hello, and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm Peggy Hughes, and I'm delighted that you're listening. On this episode, we revisit two very special events from the festival, featuring two writers close to my own heart, two of Northern Ireland's finest exports, Michael Longley and Jan Carson. First, we hear from Michael Longley, called a keeper of the artistic estate, a custodian of griefs and wonders by his friend, the late great Seamus Heaney. This is a snippet from a longer conversation with diplomat author and fellow Belfastian, William D. Hanna. Michael's 12th poetry collection, The Candlelight Master, is a gorgeous contrast of darkness and light from one of our foremost and multi-award winning poetic voices. Here, Michael reads a few poems, including one of his own favourites, Harmonica, which, being a harmonica woman myself, is also one of mine. The Odyssey and the Iliad, you come back to these frequently. Can you tell us why uh, these texts are so important to you? The Iliad, uh, I've said before, is our our greatest poem, I think, about uh, war and death. The Odyssey is just this wonderful first European novel, in a way. Both books, but especially the Iliad, I think, are bottomless. I, I feel as though, having written many poems out of Homer, I'm still only uh, scratching the surface. But I'd like to begin with a poem which goes back to 1965. It's called Persephone. Uh, Persephone at the seed of the forbidden pomegranate, and her punishment was she had spent six months in the underworld and then six months among us. It's an explanation of the phenomenon of summer and winter, really. Persephone. I see, as through a skylight in my brain, the mole struts buildings in the rain, the swallows turn above their broken home, and all my acres in delirium, straight-jacketed by cold and numb-sculled, now sleep the well-adjusted and the skilled. The bat folds its wing like a winter leaf, the squirrel in its hollow holds aloof. The weasel and ferret, the stoat and fox, move hand and glove across the equinox. I can tell how softly their footsteps go. Their footsteps borrow silence from the snow. I wrote that a long time ago. I'm still fond of it. Many of these classical poems, and indeed many of your poems about uh, with the classical background are, are quite violent uh, and, and talk of the violence of, of war. And you, you, you yourself have written many powerful poems uh, about the First World War. Your, your father was a, a distinguished soldier. He was awarded the, the military cross. He was a distinguished soldier. He joined up, you know, when he was only about 17. And by the time he was 20, he was a captain in charge of a, a company of young soldiers, many of them not regular sh- shavers. They were so young. And he, so he was a captain. He had won the military cross for, for gallantry. Although he was a successful soldier, he chose, like many, many survivors, not to talk about it. I've written a lot of poems about him. He died when I was only 20. In a way, those poems are the conversations with him that I wish I had had. It seems to me there's no future for poetry unless it does look into the blackness, into the into the pit, into the abyss, into the world of, of violence. One of the titles I quite like is when people talk to me, uh, talk of me as a, as a war poet. I prefer it when they talk of me as a, as a love poet or a nature poet. But I remember 
um, a harmonica. My dad had never heard him play anything. He picked it up and he played it quite well. And it transpired that he had, and some of the, his, his mates in the trenches had taught themselves to play the harmonica. And they had little impromptu marching bands with the harmonica. And it's such a beautiful story. And I wanted for years to write a poem about it, but I couldn't. And then I was reading a book about the early Greek philosophers. And there's this Greek philosopher. He believed that creation was made of air, that air was the basis of creation. And he breathed life into this poem, Harmonica. It's of all the poems, this is my favorite. And it's only seven lines long. Now, that may say something in itself. And I refer to a musical favorite. The one that I have at the back of my mind when I read the line is, it's a long way to Tipperary, which I can't hear without wanting to shed a tear. Harmonica. A Tommy drops his harmonica in no man's land. My dad, like old Anaximenes, breathes in and out through the holes and reeds and finds this melody. Our souls are air. They hold us together. Listen. A music hall favorite lasts until the end of time. My dad is playing it. His breath contains the world. The wind is playing an orchestra of harmonicas. My best-known poem is uh, what you might call a troubles poem, Mm. but it's about the First World War as well, although that's very oblique. In fact, sometimes I get fed up with it, you know. You'd think I'd written nothing else. This is about the old King Priam of the King of Troy, plucking up courage and going to visit Achilles in his tent to beg for the body of his son Hector, whom Achilles has killed in, in combat. And I had in the back of my mind a face for Priam. I thought of Gordon Wilson, the the draper whose uh, daughter was killed beside him in the Enniskillen Remembrance Table. So I I think of him when I read this poem. Ceasefire. Put in mind of his own father and moved to tears. Achilles took him by the hand and pushed the old king gently away. But Priam curled up at his feet and wept with him until their sadness filled the building. Taking Hector's corpse into his own hands, Achilles made sure it was washed and, for the old king's sake, laid out in uniform, ready for Priam to carry wrapped like a present, home to Troy at daybreak. When they had eaten together, it pleased them both to stare at each other's beauty as lovers might. Achilles built like a god, Priam good-looking still and full of conversation, who earlier had sighed, I get down on my knees, and do what must be done, and kiss Achilles' hand, the killer of my son. We, we, I know that poem um, so well, and I think it, it, it came out at a, 
at a very important time. It it it, it was published just just at, at a time when things were were changing. So it, it perhaps said it was a poem of its moment, but I think it's still relevant to us uh, today. But we should move over because you said earlier you'd like to be known um, as a war poet, but um, also you'd like to be known as a, as a love poet, and you're and I think you are. The, the first poem in your first collection is 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 a love poem. But you, you've told me also that you consider your poems about about nature, about birds and wildflowers are are also uh, love poems. You've written so many poems about birds. Can your poems about birds protect them? I think the birds will protect me and you. I don't think there's any future for us on this globe if we're incapable of making space for beautiful creatures like birds. But since boyhood, I've been fascinated by birds. I read this poem called Swan's Mating, which is quite early, but it's, it's again, it's a poem that I'm still fond of. It has a lovely word in it, pen, which is the, uh, the female swan, and cob, of course, is the male. Swan's Mating. Even now, I wish that you had been there, sitting beside me on the riverbank. The cob and his pen sailing in rhythm until their small heads met and the final heraldic moment dissolved in ripples. This was a marriage and a baptism, a holding of breath, nearly a drowning. Wings spread wide for balance where he trod her feathers full of water, and her neck under the water, like a bar of light. My my wife was very struck by that poem. It's it's got it's got a it's a lovely poem from from I think from the very beginning from your earliest collection. But you've been writing you you continue to write in some in some. It's as if you've chosen every species of bird in Ireland and you've written about each one. There's there's there are a few left that I haven't touched on. You know, I have one here about the flycatcher, lovely little bird, and it mentions my granddaughter, Amelia. Flycatcher. A, a new poem. A flycatcher crashed against the window. Amelia cradled the corpse in her hands and tried to breathe life into breast speckles, imagining a mossy clearing where shadowy trees intertwine branches from which to loop and glide and arrow-swift chase butterflies and stinging bees. A fledgling like herself, wing flurry flashing in the sun, a little bird practising its name and trajectory. And here's a, can I read a, another birdie one about, the, it mentions the virus, I hate poetry that tries to be up to date and topical, you know. But anyway, this is such a huge catastrophe. Uh, it's hard not, it's hard to ignore it. But this is a little poem about uh, me not being able to go to the west of Ireland because of the lockdown. I've called it isolation. Old age and the virus keep me from driving west to join sanderlings along the shoreline. Oyster catchers beyond, hoopers on the lake, tufted ducks and coots, and the heron waiting, acrobatic chuffs and talkative ravens, otters effervescent between trout and elver, stoat and hare sharing 
are rock of the wall fern. And that last line, our, the rock of the wall fern, is really a translation of Corrigskewon, the place where we go, Corrigskewon. Ah, these birds have taken us, I think, you've been, some of the, the there's a flycatcher, I think, in Scotland, isn't it? It's in western, western Scotland that you, you find the flycatcher. Yes, that's sure. right. Your, your other birds are, are often in Carrickskiwan and Mayo, Mayo. I think it's a place, it's a townland that I know, and many people know through your, through your poetry. So you have, it, you have it in your head and you remember it from, it through, through the poems. Well, yes, I refer to it as my soul landscape. I've learned more and more, I suppose, about the, the wildflowers and, and the wild birds. They, in a way, are what preoccupy me. My dear friend, the late Kieran Carson, used to talk jokingly about, as he called them, your wee poems about swans and primroses, you know. But in a way, if we don't look after the, the, the swans and the herons and the wild birds and the, the, the wild thyme and the cowslips, we're finished. We'll have destroyed, we shall have destroyed the globe and with it ourselves. Coming from going back to Belfast, I see you as a, as a city poet in a way. One of my favourite poems of yours is The Wren. You begin it by saying you've been writing too, writing too much about Carrickskiwan, but you still write about it. It still, it still inspires you. I mean, I love it so deeply because I'm a city boy. I wasn't brought up in a farm or anything like that. You know, I was brought up in a suburb of Belfast. And this, this poem is about being in Belfast and remembering Carrickskiwan, remembering my soul landscape. It's a kind of a failed song. Remembering Corrigs on A wintry night, the hearth inhales, and the chimney becomes a windpipe, fluffy with soot and thistledown, a voice box recalling animals. The leverets come of age, snipe at an angle, then the porpoise's demonstration of meaningless smiles. Home is a hollow between the waves, a clump of nettles, feathery winds, and memory no longer than a day when the animals come back to me from the townland of Korrigskiwan, from a page lit by the Milky Way. Another thing that, that, that really struck me uh, uh, and recently was you write a lot about your, your grandchildren. Well, it's a huge gift. Uh, it's about the only good thing about growing old. You acquire a new title. I'm now Papa. It's like being promoted for doing nothing. Well, I, I listen to everything they say, and uh, some of the wonderful things they say get into poems. Uh, one of my granddaughters, Maisie, said something interesting to my daughter, Sarah. Sarah said, what was that? And she says, I won't tell you because you'll only tell Papa and he'll put it in a poem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I am, in fact, my next book, I have about three quarters of a new collection, uh, which is called The Slain Birds. The epigraph will be from Dylan Thomas, for the sake of the souls of the slain birds flying, the slain birds, uh, with the implications there. And I'm dedicating it to all seven of my grandchildren, because... Uh, they are poems in themselves, each one of them. Could I ask you to read one um, um, for my grandson, uh, who's 10 years old now, The Leveret. Could you read that one to us? Yes. This, this happened 
when my gra- my grandson um, Ben is now seventeen and very manly. He plays the saxophone. He's a, 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 an accomplished young man now. But when he first came to Corrigsky One, he was just a babe in arms. There'd been so much rain that the river, the local river, the Owen or Donon, was in spate. And he and his father and mother could only get across in a neighbor's tractor. And uh, this is a poem about the, the leveret for my grandson, Ben. This is your first night in Corrigsky One. The Owen or Donon is so full of rain. You arrived in Paddy Morrison's tractor, a bumpy approach in your father's arms to the cottage where, all of one year ago, you were conceived, a fire seed in the hearth. Did you hear the wind in the fluffy chimney? Do you hear the wind tonight and the rain and a shorebird calling from the mussel reefs? Tomorrow, I'll introduce you to the sea, little hoplite. Have you been missing it? I'll park your chariot by the otter's rock and carry you over seaweed to the sea. There's a tufted duck on David's lake with her suit full of hatchlings, pom-poms a day old and already learning to dive. We may meet the stoat near the erratic boulder, a shrew in his mouth, or the merlin meadow pippet hunting. But don't be afraid. The leveret breakfasts under the future every morning, and we shall be watching. I have picked wildflowers for you, scabious and century, in a jam jar of water that will bend and magnify the daylight. This is your first night in Karikskiwan. Thank you to Chair William D. Hanna and of course to Michael Longley himself. Don't forget you can revisit the whole event on our YouTube channel and buy the Candlelight Master from our festival bookshop, which can be found on the website. Regular listeners to this podcast will recall that Jan Carson has featured before in one of our very first episodes on a postal theme, along with former MP and writer Alan Johnson and Wigtown's own postmaster Mary. It's only lovely to feature her again, this time reading a story as part of our Tea and Words series. Jan's novel The Firestarters won the EU Prize for Literature for Ireland in 2019 and was shortlisted for the Dolkey Book Prize in 2020. Jan reads her story, Soup, which chronicles the mighty grandmothers of East Belfast and their wonderful kitchen cures. There is simply nothing that a loaf of Wheaton can't fix. Soups. In other towns, at other times, my grandmother might have been taken for a witch. But not now, and not in East Belfast, where all the old ladies practice alchemy in the kitchen, stirring their fine magic into fruit loaves, pancakes and flour-freckled soda furls. They charm their victims with kindly words. Such a shame, they say, and you must be feeling dreadful. Or sometimes when one tragic circumstance has come quickly on the heels of the last, sure it never rains but it pours. Each of their words is sounded out softly like something coated in talcum powder. Oh, but these old ones know exactly how to lure a lost soul in. 
Mostly they use the telephone, but they are not adverse to cornering individuals in the street, outside Tesco's, at the bus stop, by the school gates with a child kind and shrilly in the background, with an awful eye for the weak ones. Ach, now they'll say at the first damp hint of tears, come on on in, sit yourself down, the kettle's on and a bacon just out of the oven, nothing fancy mind, but himself likes something sweet to his tea. Out will come the Tupperware in the family circle biscuit tin, stripped of its original purpose and lined now with paper doilies or Christmas serviettes, crushed paper cushion and flake meal biscuits and shortbread rounds, fifteens and butterfly buns, their tiny cake wings rising from the buttercream like actual insects poised for flight. Eat up, we'll say, looming in the doorway with a recently polished teapot, and the wheat one will eat returning for seconds or even thirds. Afterwards, she'll feel less inclined to mope. Her too full mouth will not have room for it. Her head will run sharp in the quickness of refined sugar. Better, we'll ask, and she will nod slowly, careful not to shower the carpet with crumbs or desiccated coconut. Then she'll rise and stumble home, clutching a box full of well-meaning pastries, something to dip into when the sadness catches up. The East leans upon these women, each one a specialist of sorts. This old one's waiting is a cure for sadness. Toast it and dripping butter, it'll take the edge off anything up to an actual death. The next one's apple tart works wonder on loneliness. Ideally, it should be served hot and swimming in fresh whipped cream. The other one makes stew in individual and family-sized portions, tailoring her solution to the problem's precise measurements. It is very good stew, thick with just the right amount of runniness. So good it's impossible to feel anything but warmly loved with a spoonful resting solidly on your tongue. Doubt and melancholy, absent children, philandering husbands, all can be eased if not cured outright by the correct food consumed in the correct manner, more being infinitely preferable to less. The elderly ladies of the East hold themselves quietly responsible for all the local ills. They diagnose, they prescribe, they go door to door when an intervention is required. Theirs is a calling passed from one Elizabeth, Margaret or Susan to the next. They are all cut from the same stiff cloth, stout of girth and widely hipped, capable of working miracles with an almost empty larder. Do they scrimp on the double cream? They would not dare not even on a trifle where the custard could easily compensate for lack of cream. They believe in home baking like it is a kind of religion and who would knowingly cut corners when it comes to the work of God? My grandmother was the queen of them all. She specialised in soup. Her icebox was a brick wall built of old margarine tubs, each one full of frozen soup. If tipped from their plastic casings, her soup would have formed giant ice cubes in orange, green and puddly beige, all the colours of the vegetable spectrum. There was no room in her icebox for anything but soup, not so much as a block of raspberry ripple in the summer. Needs must, and she was ready to play her part in whatever soup-based emergency the East might throw at her. Primarily, she envisioned funerals, but a small earthquake wouldn't have been beyond her catering ability. It's good to help a friend in their hour of need, she'd say. This was a nice sentiment. Most people would have said, indeed it is, Kathleen, indeed it truly is, nodding their heads in loud agreement. However, my grandmother could not stop with friends. She had soup enough for every sad soul in Belfast. 
It's the least I can do, she'd say, and I'd want to reply. No, it's not, Granny. The least you could do is nothing and give a tenner to charity at Christmas. But I didn't. I knew my grandmother couldn't help herself when it came to soup. She made particular pots for suffering friends, sending my grandmother round, grandfather around with a boot full of carrot and coriander or old-fashioned broth. Broth for awake, chicken for illness, cheerily coloured soup for a person feeling down. My grandmother had her rules. She stuck to them and would not for a minute have considered offering anything from a tin. Drive carefully, she'd say to Granda, and take the corner slow. Soup had a tendency to slop and the smell of it was almost impossible to get out of a car. A few days later, the empty containers would return to her, clean and often accompanied with a note or thank you, sweeties. My grandmother would not label her containers Kathleen Ritchie, though this was a common practice in the East. Sure, it's only a wee plastic tub, she'd say. If it comes back, it comes back. If it doesn't, somebody else will get the good out of it. She never left home without a full thermos tucked into her handbag. She made a mean cream of tomato, also cream of mushroom, leek and potato, broccoli and stilton, this being one of her fancier, fancier recipes clipped from the women's realm. It smelt like feet if left too long on the hob. My grandmother prepared a different soup for every day of the working week and on weekends made an enormous pot of vegetable broth, the carcass of an unfleshed chicken bobbling about on its surface like the remains of some poor creature gone swimming in an acid bath. The consistency of my grandmother's soup depended on the mouth which would sup it. Contributing factors included age and gender, digestive ailments, false teeth and lack of false teeth. Sometimes she'd blend, sometimes she'd refrain from blending, sometimes her soup stayed lumpy because the plastic bit of the blender was in the dishwasher and she couldn't be arsed with fishing it out. My grandmother was almost impossibly generous with her soup. She'd talk, stop to talk to sad-looking strangers in the line for the post office and on the embankment where they were only trying to walk their dogs in peace. She was canny, my grandmother, and knew better than to start straight in with the soup. Instead, she'd say, lovely weather, or wild weather, or what sort of wee dog is that? Her speaking voice was like a shoulder gently nudging a door so the sad person would feel compelled to stop and talk. Ten minutes later, they'd find themselves sitting on a bench or public seat, telling my grandmother they did not know how to go on getting up every morning with everything as impossible as it currently was. Often, they would be in tears. You don't understand, they'd say. It's just so hard. My grandmother would always reply, Now you're right, I don't understand. Because she didn't. My grandmother was the sort of woman who'd been born standing up. She had not known major illness or hard loss of any kind. Neither had she hungered for food or money. Her eyes were permanently concertinaed from too much smiling. From time to time, my grandfather would say, She grins like a half-wit in her sleep trying to insinuate that this was a nasty habit, like breaking wind in public. He was only picking holes. My grandmother was a full-time joy. Granda knew this. Every time he considered the sour-faced old ones he lived next door and across the street, he'd realise his own good luck. Your granny's some woman, he'd say to me. She makes the best tomato soup in the East. This was the extent of his romance. Being of a certain era, not good with sobby talk or flowers, he'd never once taken my grandmother in his arms and said, Kathleen, you're one in a million. 
every Friday night he'd bring her home a Terry's chocolate orange and a bottle of brown lemonade, assuming these items capable of doing the sweet talking for him. My grandmother had nothing to be unhappy about, therefore she was happy. She could muster no empathy for the sad souls in the post office queue or those dragging their West Highland Terriers along the embankment in the rain, but she did have sympathy and enormous amounts of soup. Dear, oh dear, she'd say, that's terrible altogether, or my heart goes out to you. If it was a sad lady of a certain age, she would pat her gently up and slowly down like an elderly priest doling out the blessing. She was careful not to touch the young ones or men, was easier for them to get the wrong idea. I can't begin to imagine how you must be feeling, she'd say, but you must keep your strength up. Then she'd go fumbling around her handbag for the soup. Sometimes the stranger refused the soup, always politely with an appropriate excuse. On other occasions, they took the thermos and walked away, clutching the dull heat of it against their chest like a hot water bottle. Common sense kept them from consuming the contents, but it was comforting to feel the warmth come creeping, creeping through their shirts and blouses. These people, though they never got the full goodness of my grandmother's soup, were nevertheless left with the aftertaste of it, the realisation that kindness was still available to them in small, manageable portions. Sometimes an individual was so hungry they'd open my grandmother's thermos right there on a park bench or public seat and tip the slipping contents into the little white mug which sat like a hat over the flask's mouth. The steam would rise off it in white cauliflower puffs and they'd remember all the simple soups of their childhood, chicken, tomato, mushroom, and without realising blow their cold breath over the surface of the cup. This small act alone was enough to lift them a half inch or two above present circumstances. They'd raise the cup to their lips and feel the soup go swimming over teeth and tongue, down the back of their parched throat to their belly, which had been waiting so long for a little comfort. Then they'd feel braver, just for half an hour or so, cruising on the kind soup my grandmother had given them. They'd have strength enough to get them up off the public seat, down the Castlery Road and back through their own front door to the trouble waiting inside. My grandmother's name was Kathleen. Most people in East Belfast knew her as the soup lady. They would not have passed her in the street. Last spring, my grandfather died suddenly of a stuck heart. Through the kitchen window, my grandmother watched him slip down behind the lawnmower and lie on the lawn. So still was he, not even a finger twitching. She knew he was dead without checking. She did not cry nor voice any kind of wild grief. Instead, she held her silence like a lap cat and prayed. She sat quietly in the corner of her living room, flicking through the pages of the family Bible until she'd learnt how to hold her mouth like a lost woman. The length of this was around a month, during which she did not make soup. Nor would she consume so much as a teaspoonful of it, though we urged and implored and pointed out the icebox stack full of every conceivable flavour. For an entire month, my grandmother lived on plain biscuits and dishwater tea. She claimed no appetite for anything stronger. Other women brought casseroles, fruit loaves, sympathy pancakes still warmish from the oven. My grandmother gave polite thanks. She waited till the well-wishers left before passing their gifts on to visiting relations or storing them in the deep freeze, anticipating hungrier days to come. On the first morning of the second month, she rose from her sad chair and made soup. Vegetable broth, cream of chicken, 
tomato, leek and chunky potato, peeling each peel spud by hand. Her stove cluttered itself with long-handled pots, bubbling and spitting like burst volcanoes. The smell coming off these pots was a holy smell, rising as incense rises towards the roof and the heavens beyond. Condensation fogged the windows, forming watery pools along the sill. The kitchen bench, inch thick with peel and rind, burst its banks and dripped onto the lino. My grandmother stood slipper deep in the mess of it. She raised her right hand like Christ calming the storm and stirred all her sadness into those soups. She used a wooden spoon, a different one for each pot. Grief can turn a good thing bitter, but when it came to my grandmother's soup, it was not grief which clamoured for the tongue's attention. Beneath the nip tart of tomatoes, the smooth blush of cream and buttered mushroom, a softer taste was waiting to take hold. This was a taste like the sound of two sung voices rising in harmony, a taste like the feel of one hand slipping warmly into another, or understanding, or something the recipient was particularly hungry for. This was the best soup my grandmother had ever made. Thank you to Jan and 2021 is a big year for her with The Last Resort, a 10-part BBC Radio 4 short story series, as well as a novel, No Promised Land, both coming in 2021, which is so exciting for Jan fans such as myself and maybe yourself too. Tea, words, poetry, soup, birds, harmonicas, light dropping slow. We very much hope you've enjoyed this episode as those nights draw in as much as we have. Thank you to Jan and to Michael, and of course, as always, to you for listening. Take good care of yourselves. Bye-bye.